It's Jared. So I'm just going to come out and say it. This episode is going to be very different from all the other contested episodes we've done so far. And it's going to be different in a few ways. The first, as you can probably tell by the title of the episode, is this is going to be a longer episode that's going to be broken into multiple parts, with part one releasing this week and part two releasing next week. It's going to be different in the sense that my guest on this episode is not someone of my age, um, but rather someone who has more life experience and whose job revolves around the topic that he's going to be talking about. And lastly, this episode's going to be different because it's not as much a straightforward explaining episode about a topic. It's going to be more of a freeform conversation about race in general. The goal of this episode is to be just an open conversation about a whole bunch of things surrounding race, including um, where does Judaism play into that? Is that something that's been raised as an issue over time? And where does higher ed, which is what Zach uh, focuses on, how does higher ed interact with race? And a whole host of other topics. So, well, normally we do 15 to 20 minute explainers on a very precise topic. This will not be quite like that. But I still really encourage you to listen because I think... This conversation is a lot more fluid and still highly intellectually engaging, and you can still learn a whole lot from it. So with that said, I'm not going to do a massive introduction for Zach because he'll do that for himself. So without any further ado, let's just get into it. Hi, Zach. Hey, man. How you doing? Good. How about yourself? You know, just living that quarantine life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess same for all of us. So seeing that you aren't the first guest who is either my age or someone I've interacted with in various spheres and got to know a little bit more personally, can you just provide a little bit of an introduction about yourself and what you do? Sure. As any good academic, and you start with my credentials, right? So uh, I got my PhD from UCLA in higher education, looking at Chinese, Japanese, and Korean international students and their racial stereotypes towards white, Black, Latino, and Asian Americans. So I've always been interested in um, racial justice issues, probably because my family's background with the Holocaust and racial stuff in, in Europe, but we'll get into that. I grew up in LA, West LA, which makes me a little Hollywood. That's why I'm wearing this uh, funky shirt right now that the viewers can't see. Um, <laughs> I have been a diversity dean at Claremont Colleges, Harvey Mudd College. I did diversity assistant director stuff at University of Redlands. And I also worked at American Jewish University as a career center director. And currently I'm at Cal State Dominguez Hills as the interim associate dean of students, um, which basically means I help with conduct issues, so adjudicating conduct process and making sure restorative justice is infused into those practices, and also care. So care is a care team that helps students who are facing mental health issues or other types of issues of trauma or getting through the university in a, in a productive manner. And I also help with basic needs, which is students who are facing housing insecurity and food insecurity. So, yeah, I guess that's me in a nutshell. Yeah, 
you definitely seem like you have a lot on your plate and a uh, kind of a lot that you've done in your life, which is just totally amazing. I always love hearing about like all the different things you've done, but obviously at the core of kind of your interest, and I know a lot of things outside of work has been racial equality and uh, fixing some racial inequities. And the first thing that you mentioned kind of in your introduction is that you're inspired by your past heritage. Um, so if you can kind of describe your personal history as well as societal history. Who was it, Audre Lorde that said the personal is political? Yeah, I mean, my personal background has really influenced my professional um, foreground. Huh? And uh, my dad was born in a refugee camp in Germany, Bavaria, at southern Germany. We get the B and BMW, Bavarian Motor Works. And, you know, where I can go into that whole fun tangent of, you know, BMW is they made the tanks for the Nazis and the same thing with Mercedes-Benz made the airplanes and the tanks for the Nazis, but also made the gas for the gas chambers, the Zyklon B. And, uh, man, you know, these companies, huge companies um, are, were complicit in just mass death. Uh, same thing with IBM. They did the punch cards for the concentration camps and to see how many people died. And also Volkswagen was made for the Nazi Volkswagen. It was made for Hitler's birthday in 1935. And just wacky stuff of like, I mean, unbelievable stuff. The, the first guy to make the first um, car, suppose it was, a, I guess, a Jewish guy. And then he got sent to the camps. And then eventually when he got out, he sued and got the rights to the first Volkswagen car. But, um, you know, just history. History is, is, uh, is in the blood and on the mind because uh, it's never really past, right? That's what Faulkner says. Yeah. So trying to understand my grandparents, one I never met, the other I really grew up with, and their experience in Auschwitz and other concentration camps, and what it means for a guy like me, who a generation ago would have been either in the camps or fleeing the Nazis. And I wish there was a version of Black Lives Matter, you know, like Jewish Lives Matter in Europe at the time. And I think that's why my um, I'm always yelling at people proverbially to understand the moment and the time that we live in in America and who is on the chopping block right now and who is, as Richard Nixon would say, who is getting the slow violence, right? Or the slow death of, of poor schools, poor uh, healthcare, mm -hmm. all these things that, that um, Jews in Europe at one time were um, receiving or not receiving. I like to um, emphasize this. Uh, fact that my grandmother received reparations from the German government for her incarceration in the concentration camps, uh, as did my grandfather, which amounted to about $300 a month. But we never, this country never gave reparations to black folks who were enslaved, um, nor to Native American folks who were enslaved, and nor to um, Latinx folks who, uh, whose land was taken and, and they were also genocided. And fun fact that is really not fun, uh, I was reading The Nation magazine and in 1862, the U.S. actually did reparations for white slave owners hmm. to, the, to the tune of $300 per person that you owned. Whoa. Right? So, yeah, this is Abraham Lincoln and who, you know, we don't teach us part of history. And because it's this notion of you're, we're switching over to this new economy, you're going to lose money you white slave owners. So we're going to reimburse you for your quote unquote property, which is, you know, human lives. Um, and for the black folks who were enslaved, 
the US government will give you up to $100 if you just get the heck out of here. Uh, you can go to Haiti, you can go to Liberia, we've extracted your labor and we have no more purpose for you, please leave and we'll give you a hundred bucks. We won't give you as much as we, we are giving to the uh, white slave owners. So I like to juxtapose those two facts because it's startling to know that the global community can pressure Germany to give reparations to Jewish folks who were incarcerated, but I don't know. I, I'm not sure if they gave it to gypsy Romani folks. I'm not sure if they gave it to gay folks that they tortured and imprisoned. But why did this country never give reparations to uh, Native Americans or Black folks? So these are the questions that I grew up with thinking. I went to public school. So I was kind of one of the only Jewish white guys in school, uh, but a lot of my friends were Black and Brown. And so learning their family histories, learning their stories, I got a really rich history of the world. And I also got a rich history of the racial landscape of LA because Monday through Friday, I'd be at public school. And then Sunday, I would go to Hebrew school where mm. my Hebrew school was very wealthy students. And I didn't drive a BMW and nor would I ever because of my father's history, right? <laughs> yeah. BMW is not to be bought or supported. And, and just also it was different it was, it was a different cultural milieu and they were just very different than what I grew up with in terms of class and all these other things. So I have been fascinated and interested in what role can I play in being a bridge between Jewish communities, white communities, mm. communities of color, and how do you bridge all these kind of divides and help people understand each other in a deeper, richer way? so that you can build that world that we all want to see and kind of that tukun olam and repairing mm. um, the world that, that maybe once was or, or the world that could be. So I think that's what I've dedicated not only my teaching. Oh yeah, I, I do adjunct professor gigs at UCLA and at Dominguez Hills, as well as my administrative work. So obviously there was a, a lot there, but I think what you touched on is something really important, which is that one, the whole kind of idea of being Jewish now versus just a generation ago and kind of juxtaposing that. And I think your note on BMW, Volkswagen, I mean, Deutsche Bank funded the whole thing. IBM was involved in it. Um, and those are just like things that are kind of brushed over now. And I mean, Deutsche Bank's in a whole separate issue on other stills, but. Wells Fargo. Yeah. Uh, with slavery and um, Chase. Chase Bank had to shell out $5 million in like 2003. Or 2006, because they were, um, they said, well, we're sorry for enslaving black folks. Uh, we're going to create a scholarship fund for bl black and brown folks uh, for $5 million. But, but go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a plethora of these. And I think uh, your point about reparations, uh, especially for white slave owners, is a startling fact that's probably missed in a lot of the modern reparations conversations. But the thing that I think I want to hop off from there is kind of what you were saying about building bridges between communities that were either once marginalized, still marginalized, uh, as you said, are on the chopping block now or were in the past. And so the first question I'll kind of lead with is, right, I would say for most students uh, in high school or just general people, right, the idea of race in America is almost inextricably connected to slavery in the civil rights era, right? Mm -hmm. Slavery is bad, then we have a little bit of reconstruction, maybe some people know about that. And then we hit the civil rights era and big things happen. And then right now, who knows? Which is obviously a grossly oversimplified version. 
but as far as building bonds between groups, um, I think it was one thing that struck me as really interesting was that the Jewish and black communities had a really strong bond at the very beginning of the civil rights movement. And this is just uh, for a variety of reasons. I mean, I think, as you said, a lot of people just 20 years previous had been like, hey, we need help, you know, Takuna Olam, we got to help out the people who need help now. And then, I mean, I'm not a, a scholar in this in any way, but from what I've read, kind of uh, Malcolm X's root in the Nation of Islam and a whole bunch of other kind of anti-Semitic forces fractured a lot of those bonds uh, at the end of the civil rights movement going forward. So I guess the question would be from there, Am I correct? Is that actually what happened? And then to what are some efforts that are going on now to try to connect those bonds once again? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I think the key part to hone in on is what happens after the Civil War, mm. which is, you know, what we had about, I don't know, 200 plus years of slavery, right? I mean, the first first white folks came in 1619, right? That new... Yeah, uh, the, the New York Times, uh, yeah. Yeah, so... They arrived on, at Point Comfort in a ship called the White Lion, right? You know, which is all these terrible racial things. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so if we have slavery in, uh, starting in 1619 in this country of Black folks, that kind of comes to a crashing end in 1865, I guess. But it just morphs. You know, mm -hmm. slavery doesn't really end. It becomes sharecropping. It becomes, after sharecropping, it becomes Jim Crow and that, that you have for another 100 years until 1965, right? But you have 10 years, 10 years, man, of reconstruction. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, 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 it's nothing. And it's because Abraham Lincoln is shot and killed and his vice president, Andrew Johnson, is a, is a you know, mofo and he's a, he's, <laughs> a, he's a Southern slave owner Democrat guy. Yeah. And, and he doesn't want reconstruction. But, you know, you have a moment of... Black folks becoming senators, becoming Congress folks, becoming mm -hmm. uh, uh, mayors and governors of Southern states and white, especially, you know, well, upper class white folks and poor white folks and the whole thing start freaking out because they're losing power and they're losing their white supremacy. Let's be honest, right? It's white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And so then you have a killing of that reconstruction in 1876. But in fact, you actually have the federal government with Ulysses S. Grant putting the kibosh on the KKK in like 1871. And the, the U.S. government actually goes after and, and kills these KKK guys. Um, and the KKK is a product of reconstruction. Mm -hmm. KKK guys are saying these black folks are, are getting too uppity and they're doing great things. And this is very scary to us. And we need to kill these people. And they make up rules and reasons why they need to kill people. So these lynchings are, on the surface, we lynch this person because they whistled at a, at a woman, at a white woman. Sure. I mean, birth of a nation is basically that. Right, exactly. But if you dig deeper, the reason that they lynch these folks is because they were economically progressing. They had a business that was doing better than the white business. And so it, there were economic assassinations you could say, right? So, so that's another error that we don't teach in, uh, in our schools, that it wasn't just that white people hated black people. Yes, that's a part of it. That's a part of it. But it's about money and power. And black folks were getting more money and power. And so we need to kill them. And it's the same SHIT that you see in Europe. 
these Jews are getting too much money, they're getting too much power, we got to kill them. And it's just because Hitler made a really, really powerful apparatus to kill people in the best way possible. It's the mechanization of killing. And we hadn't seen it at that scale in a long, well, maybe ever, right? But it wasn't anything new. Hitler didn't do something new necessarily, but I digress. So, you know, 1876, you have Tilden Hayes Act. It's basically a, a Gore-Bush thing where they tie. Yeah, the tie compromise of 77. Exactly. They, so you know this stuff, right? And so I don't think America has ever really recouped from that moment. Mm. I think we're still trying to reconstruct the South. Mm. I think we're probably now trying to reconstruct the middle of the country. And now we're trying to reconstruct the Rust Belt because that economic engine stopped. And the Rust Belt basically gave us Trump, right? Because those five Great Lakes states uh, didn't go for Hillary because they were upset about the economy or, or whiteness or whatever you want to say, right? Or both. It's the same stuff in America in the last hundred years or so. So... Yes, you're right. But you have this moment in the 30s and 40s with FDR that really helps middle class white folks. And the New Deal is a new deal for middle class white folks that, that served in the army. And it leaves out black folks. And it actually helps some poor white folks um, a lot. But you have Lyndon Johnson with this war on poverty, but also this notion of a great society. Right? Same thing with JFK. Camelot, right? That we can build this shining city on a hill. Um, and we've never really done that. I think we've done it for some people. And education has been a generator for people to climb up the social ladder. So you have the GI Bill, right, in the 40s for all these guys that are coming back from the war and you can go to college for free, right? So all the stuff that Bernie Sanders is talking about and people are like, oh my God, he's, he's a nut job. We were doing the stuff in the 40s, mm -hmm. right? We were giving free tuition and free housing almost to guys who went and fought and killed our, our quote unquote enemies um, in Europe. And we did have a lot of enemies in Europe and in Asia. So that's the first time that higher ed kind of democratizes because you have poor white folks and you have middle class white folks going into college for the first time. You have a rapid expansion of junior colleges. In the Civil War era, you have the land grant institutions. That's why you have Ohio, University of Ohio, and then you have Ohio State, University of Illinois, Illinois State, Michigan State, University of Michigan. That's because government said, I'm gonna, we're going to grant you this land if you start building these colleges and universities because we need to beat the South and, and we need to figure out how to kill them better. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's sad to say, but this is kind of an arms race. I think the other thing to remember is slavery wasn't banned in New York State until 1827. So it's not like the North was pure and great and didn't have racism and slavery. Harvard, Yale, Brown, Princeton, you name it, all those fancy pants schools, all were doing human trafficking slavery. They were all slave-owning campuses, Georgetown, that were actually going to go out of business, but then started purchasing Black people, and then their revenue went up. So... Georgetown is now reckoning with this and doing mm -hmm. reparations for ancestors of enslaved black folks and Harvard and Yale are kind of doing their own kind of version of it. But if it wasn't for the ghosts of the past and the loud voices of the present to force these institutions into shame and guilt and then opening their wallet, you wouldn't have any of this stuff. Mercedes Benz doing the Zyklon B. I have my problems with Israel for sure, 
but you know Israel pushed on Mercedes-Benz to do reparations for Israel. So that's why when you go to Israel, if you go, the cabs and a lot of the buses are Mercedes-Benz because there's you know a notion that we have to macht gut, right? Uh, make good on on the sins of our, our our fathers and mothers, really. So it's a long way of answering, man, where are we today? I mean, I think the 60s and 70s had a really opening up of the systems are white supremacy and they're effed up and we need to open it up to black and brown folks, poor folks, uh, disabled folks, LGBTQ plus folks, right? And, you know, you have kind of the Reagan years where not much good stuff <laughs> happens in terms of social justice. And, and you know, the Obama years were pretty good. I mean, you had DACA, which opened things up a bit. You had same-sex marriage passed. Uh, you had more money going into public colleges and universities and an expansion of community colleges, again, reminiscent of um, the FDR times. But, you know, with, with Trump, it's kind of, um, it's kind of like the Reagan years on steroids. So every, <laughs> every college for itself and kind of um, Betsy DeVos doesn't really know what she's doing. And, and, or maybe she does, knows exactly what she's doing, right? She has good marching orders to do like what Reagan wanted to do, which is kill the Department of Education. And so if you just defund it enough, you can kill a department and use that money to bomb Iran or, or bomb whoever you think is this, the boogeyman for today or tomorrow. And so it, it's sad because U.S. folks lose out. I'm not even going to say citizens because I don't, I don't really want to just put ourselves in a box that, that uh, non-citizens are, are non-humans because we do that too often. But U.S. folks who are here really suffer because I have students who are, you know, have crazy loan debt and it's just a bad, bad situation right now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Contested. The second part of Zach's episode will air next Monday, so stay tuned. In the meanwhile, feel free to follow us on Instagram at Contested Politics and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play under the name Contested Politics. Again, I'd really like to say a big thank you to Zach Ritter, and I'm really excited to release the second part of our episode. If you like what you heard, feel free to share this with anyone that you know who may be really interested in politics or may not be at all. All of your support is greatly appreciated, as always. So until next time, thank you for helping us understand politics together.